Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Sen. I'm a clinical psychologist, family therapist, and the director of the Peregrine Centre. Again, this podcast comes to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Today's topic is family therapy, very close to my own heart. I'm very excited to have two guests in the studio today with me. Uh, we'll get them to introduce themselves to you. We might start with Anna. Hi. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I was about to say welcome, but <laughs> welcome everybody listening. Yeah. Um, so my name's Anna Siddis. I'm a clinical psychologist. I teach at the University of Wollongong, and I've been studying and practicing family therapy for about six or seven years now, on an approach called open dialogue, primarily with young people with early psychosis or with the first episode of psychosis. Um, more recently, I'm actually doing some work with young people where, uh, with uh, families where there's a young person who's suicidal. Um, yeah, so I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Anna. And Jenny. Also good to be here. That's a topic that has been family therapy's kind of been part of my professional journey almost from the start. So I'm social work trained. My early work was in alternate care work supporting foster families, then moving into a bit of research on preventative approaches to children coming into care. This is back in the 1980s, long time. <laughs> and having some wonderful family therapy supervision, Laurie McKinnon supervising our team from behind the screen, mm. the Milan systemic approach back then. And I have worked in a range of settings in Australia, in the US, in the UK, different demographics from working with a project with Salvador Mnuchin and homeless families in East Harlem and New York mm -hmm. to working with American expats in London <laughs> and, and seeing family therapy, different socio demographics and back working in Australia since the late 1990s in health for a time as a supervisor in family therapy and then in private practice for a long time and training people in family systems approaches at the Family Systems Institute that I helped to found in Sydney. Is that a word? To found, yes, to set yes. up <laughs> in um, 2004 and I'm still involved with that institute, not leading it anymore, I'm relieved to say, so I can focus on my postdoctoral work, mm. which is around how to best take a family systems approach and engage parents effectively in their child's mental health treatment. Mm. Which leads very nicely to our first question, which we, we also asked in our parent training episode. So this question is, what's the difference between family therapy family inclusive practice and parent training. Maybe Anna, I'll give you the mm, first opportunity. Yeah, sure. I look forward to hearing what you guys spoke about in the last podcast. But um, 
Look, I guess the way that I see it is, um, I mean, I, I kind of picture parent training as an opportunity for parents to think about their own values and what they want to bring to that role. And so I think a lot of the work that you do there is with parents, obviously, although there will be, you do engage children as well in that, but it is largely around that role, the parenting role. I think family inclusive practice is where you invite families in <laughs> to these spaces, to the clinical spaces. Um, you invite families in as potential resources. You are in, in communication with family members, which I think is something that in health settings we probably need to do better. And I think applies not just to people under 18, but people of all ages. And then there's family therapy, which is how long have we got? <laughs> yes. Um, and we, we will talk a lot more about that today. Um, but I think that yeah. is a good point that family inclusive practice doesn't necessarily mean you have to be trained as a family therapist. Correct, yeah. It is a, it, it is simply communicating with families mm. and inviting them to be part of a process. Mm. Anything to add? Indeed. I love that description. So I'll pick up the, yeah. the baton of the, the brief family therapy piece. Yes. I think that it's important to distinguish between a theory, which is a way of thinking about family and all the work you do, versus a model, which is a particular approach in family therapy to engage multiple members of a household or an important intimately connected group of people, whatever shape the family is, mm. that that's the core of family therapy and that it would be intergenerational mm -hmm. on the whole, mm -hmm. distinct from couple therapy or individual mm. therapy. I often think about this idea about family therapy defines problems as sitting between people and not within people. That's a very, I think, important distinction between mm. perhaps uh, intrapsychic kind of um, therapies and relational family therapy. So let's do a very, very quick tour of the history of family therapy. Where would you start? <laughs> would you start with behavioral kind of structural therapy? Is that where you would start? I'd go back further. Uh, I, I was going to, I mean, I don't know. I think I, I tend to think about Bateson. I don't know yeah. if that, I don't know if you're going to go that far back, but further back, or further, even further. Oh. Well, I think I'm um, because my the well, I've trained in structural mm. and in Milan and post Milan and some narrative. Mm. The theory that has connected most with me is Murray Bowen's family systems mm -hmm. theory, mm -hmm. and that really emerged out of psych psychodynamic approaches to family. Mm -hmm therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jackson was mm -hmm. one of those. Bateson came a little bit later than Bowen. Bowen was kind of off on his own, mm. working out how to have a theory of working with the family that he couldn't find through psychoanalytic mm. theory. Mm -hmm. And it was really in the late 50s mm. that developed and then mm. moved to the cybernetics and Bateson mm -hmm. and the strategic and structural approaches mm -hmm. and you want to pick it up from there. Oh, yeah, I, can, I can try. <laughs> I can give it a go. I guess I was just thinking about, you know, that idea because I, I do, I'm familiar with Bowen mostly from, from learning from the Family, the Family Systems Institute, <laughs> which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think of Bateson and his double bind idea. Mm. And I think Bateson, probably because I've worked so much with early psychosis, that I think about what, how he tried to understand families through the lens of what was going on interpersonally in the mm. relationship and mm -hmm. his idea of double bind, which is where 
two messages are being communicated at the same time and one of them is maybe verbal and the other is what people are doing with their bodies. And so this kind of sets up something that makes it very difficult for a young person to understand what to do or how to be in a particular situation. And he kind of connected that to the people that he was seeing with schizophrenia. Mm. So, but I think you make a really interesting point. I think it's quite a significant shift to go from the problem is in a person to the problem is between people. But I think it, you know, it, it, it offers something really unique in particular, doesn't it? And it makes me think of Michael White's idea. The person is not the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is the problem. And it just means that there's so much more you can do with the conversation when you're able to start to see it as what's happening between people. Yeah, I think it's kind of similar, you know, the narrative model did sort of begin in this mm-hmm. schizophrenia treatment and the idea about, you know, having a different way to treat people who often are, in inverted commas, untreatable. It doesn't seem to be anything that's helping here. Mm-hmm. Of course, narrative and family have a have a checkered history. There was a period of time when they decided <laughs> they weren't the same thing, which mm-hmm. is fair enough. Mm-hmm. Again, this idea about what's happening between people and, and the – um, primacy of the uh, relationship mm. and not just between two people but considering the whole of the system. And I, and I know that Bateson, I guess one of the really big things he gave was just this idea about this, you can think of people as a kind of system mm. and, and very simply put that there are um, interactions between the people in the system which may be similar to other s- kinds of systems in nature and mm inorganic systems as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if we start kind of there and then I, I do think structural obviously is a pretty big um, <laughs> part of the family therapy history. Do you want to talk a little bit about what structural therapy brought to to treatment? Yes. I do think um, for those who are really new to family therapy, which might be some of our listeners, it might perhaps you're switching off right now thinking what's the history you're going to give me in terms of skills for how do I work with families and so just I think there's common factors across Mm -hmm. all of them which you've already talked about in terms of it's the in-betweens the key question that I'm asking is how is each person affecting the other Mm -hmm. just keeping it simple Mm -hmm. and each of the family theory and therapy models took a slightly different way of looking at the in-betweens and how to intervene. Mm. So Mnuchin, who developed structural family therapy, was looking at hierarchies being disturbed, alliances and triangles, which Bowen came at, but a slightly different type of triangle idea. So in simple form, the key method of structural therapy are enactments are coaching the family in the session Mm -hmm. to move their positions and um, the therapist being very active in giving a parent a different way of relating to a child or to the parenting partner. So that would be structural in its very basic form. And I know that there are eclectic family therapists who are very influential in Australia will say, such as Laurie McKinnon and Kerry James, that structural family therapy, while it's a little bit out of favour and um, more constructivist ideas have taken over from those original ideas, they will still use many of the techniques, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. enactments for acting out kids rather than internalised presentations. Mm. So 
there are some useful things to take mm. from each theory, mm. I think. I think that is a good point. Lots of people have different tools that they use from different models, mm -hmm. but actually the way they formulate is a particular model of what sort. Mm -hmm. You said structural might be slightly out of favour. I think um, one of the things that might have led to that is that perhaps, you know, in its purest form, it was perhaps quite prescriptive to families. It was sort of saying, I'm the therapist, I'm going to come in, I'm going to tell you what is good, and then, you know, you go away and do it and you'll have a better life. Mm -hmm. uh, constructivist, Anna, you're, you're the one who's interested in philosophy. Tell us what constructivist means. <laughs> where, where does one start? Um, <laughs> constructivism, oh gosh. Um, you don't want 20, people to switch off. Yeah, yeah, words or less. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I guess, you know, the, 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 uh, and I suppose it's good to think about practically what's happening in the session. Maybe that's a good place to start and think. Um, so dialogical therapies, probably the most well-known constructivist family ideas, come, came largely from the work of Tom Anderson, and Tom Anderson uh, developed the reflecting team notion. So constructivism essentially is really about the idea that um, we kind of create realities through how we speak about things and what we talk about. And so dialogical therapies are all about what's in the talk, what's in the content, and how people are communicating with each other. Dialogical therapists are much less directive. They might, might not encourage people to do anything in particular, but what they do instead is listen very carefully to what's happening when the family speak to each other. And then they talk to each other as usually two clinicians, sometimes more than two, who work together and speak together about off to offer more perspectives on the problem. And then once they've done, had, had that little talk, they then invite the family members to pick and choose what they think they could get out of it, what they want to talk about more, what they want to talk about less. It's a Finnish approach, so it's slow, it's very reserved. <laughs> and we've talked about this a bit, I think, Rebecca, it's very, you have to be very patient. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you're still holding, I think, a lot of the things that structural family therapists do. Like, we're still cautious. We don't want family members to say things that are going to hurt each other. And so we're interested in holding those spaces as well that, in, in a safe way so that families can actually start to communicate about the things that they're reluctant to do, to talk about. So, you know, in the work that I do with young people who are suicidal, a lot of the time the conversation is, how can you talk to your mum when you're feeling this way? How can you tell her that you're feeling this way? And how can mum respond to you in a way that's going to encourage you to talk to her? <laughs> um, and so th those dialogical therapies are really about how we help people to talk to each other. A lot of it came from Tom Anderson's work. A lot of it came from Mikhail Bakhtin. I probably won't go into that, but we'll link something. We'll link something in the show <laughs> yeah, notes. Yeah, that'll be in the further resources if but you're interested. Further readings, yes. But that that is a good example, I think, where how can you uh, speak to your mum about these things and then how can your mum respond mm. in a way that would encourage you to do that further? Mm. That's a good example, I think, of tr trying to think uh, in between people mm. and not within people. Mm. Um, it would be remiss to to skip Milan mm -hmm. and the importance of Milan, <laughs> mainly because that's my favourite um, <laughs> model. Uh, and and I guess this idea of um, hypothesising or kind mm. of seeing that there's patterns in the family that might be a, a kind of solution of sorts but not that helpful at this point in time and can we offer different um, alternatives to family. Mm. One of the very important parts of Milan, of course, is working towards neutrality. Mm -hmm. do, you, do either of you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Because that's one of the common factors, I think, in family therapy. Mm. 
Yes, and it's often misunderstood. Yeah. People hear neutrality and think, "Do you? Does that mean you don't have any values yeah. behind mm. about the way people should treat each other? You're always just neutrally mm. accepting everything." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a misunderstanding. I my original training was in Milan systemic therapy, and I have a, a lot that I value about. All that it gave me in learning how to engage with family members, ask good circular questions, mm. how it just opened up ways to involve everyone in the room in good reflective conversation, mm. which is a neutral space, mm. isn't it? Mm. Where there's space for people to say their perspective and to reflect from the way I've evolve my family therapy practice into more of a Bowen family systems. Neutrality is expressed more as an objective process of describing not people, drawing out not people's opinions so much as I might have done more with the Milan approach Mm -hmm. and uh, saying, how would you describe that relationship? Mm -hmm. And what would you rate your levels of closeness? Mm -hmm. Which I think is useful and interesting. But what I'm doing now to keep neutrality and objectivity is asking people to describe the who, what, when, where, and what next. Mm -hmm. And how valuable that is. Because it's not an opinion or a judgment. It's just people saying, this is what I said, this is how mum responded, and the mother being able to hear it, not as a criticism, but, oh, yes, I did respond that way. Or with the adolescent, they're saying, I wish mum would get off my back. And then you get a description of actually what happened a couple of nights ago around a, a very difficult interaction. And you can ask the adolescent from what they've described, you would like your mum to get off your back. When you described going out to your mum helpless and crying that you couldn't get your homework done, what do you think is the invitation she's receiving from that? Mm -hmm. And what does her response tell you is what you're doing helping Mm -hmm. to give you the kind of independence you're saying you want. So it moves beyond just getting people to say what they think is wrong with others. It moves it beyond blaming others to saying, oh, look what I'm actually doing. Mm-hmm. And it's not really serving my growth or how I'd like my family to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So that would be the way to just stay objective mm-hmm. based on what people actually do as I much think, as you can. I think that's another common factor, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's um, What I do has consequences. Do I like those consequences? Am I into that? Or am I not? Is there something happening in that dynamic that I'm actually not happy about? Mm. When I think, oh, you mentioned circular questions. We want to talk a bit about, <laughs> um, you know, important to talk about circular questions. So circular questions, I guess, um, when we think about them, and I don't know what would be the technical term, but asking a third party mm. about, uh, to, you know, could be a relationship, could be about another person. My favourite circular question, which I think is uh, anybody can use in any circumstance, uh, I'm about to ask Anna Blah, mm. Jenny, what do you think she's going to say? Mm. So it's a it's super uh, basic, but I think always often brings forth something that's really interesting because it's mm. not just about what Anna's going to say. 
It's also about what Jenny thinks Anna's going to say, but it also um, asks Anna to listen to what Jenny thinks she's going to say. And so in that sense, it's about the relationship between the two of you. So I really like circular questions because they're kind of, they're very efficient. You know, they do a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. in the one question. So I think that whole kind of conversation illustrates that there are lots of different ways of approaching family therapy. Mm. And if you're listening out there, you might think, oh, my gosh, this seems like a lot of information. <laughs> well, we're not certainly trying to teach you all the models of family therapy in an hour, uh, but just trying to illustrate, I suppose, that there are lots of different ways of approaching it. But the common factors being thinking about problems existing mm. between people and not within people. What do you think attracts people to family therapy? What do you think might be uh, useful about family therapy? I'll speak for myself, perhaps, to start. (laughs) Like, I worked for a long time with young people. So the majority of my career was with adolescents and teenagers, and I had been trained in CBT at at the university that I studied at. Um, And I then kind of studied narrative and thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. Um. And But because I had worked for so long with young people, the first time I went to see somebody present, it happened to be an open dialogue, but in a family-based model, I thought, why have I not been doing this for 10 years? How have I been working <laughs> in any other way? Because, I mean, look, it seems very obvious for adolescents and children. It seems more obvious for adolescents and children. Um, for the early psychosis, young people that I worked for with, that was, you know, up to 25. But it occurred to me the more that I learned beyond that age, of all ages, we're all living with each other. We're all living with people. We're Mm. not living in isolation. Mm. And family members can be utilised as such a wonderful resource in Mm. your therapy, Mm. not only in understanding the person, the individual that you might you may be working with, but also that they may be able to help them. <laughs> and they do offer the things that as therapists we can't, right? They're there for us. They're there for that individual when they're crying in the middle of the night, when something's gone wrong, when their boyfriend's broken up with them. It's mm. usually the people who they live with or the people who they're most closely connected to who are doing all of that. Mm. So, I was just really annoyed with myself for not being doing it for longer (laughs) Um, because of those things, you know. It is interesting how much of adult work relates to relationship, you Mm. know, that people come, that people say, what are you stressed about? Oh, I'm stressed about my relationship with my wife Mm. and that my children are stressing me out. and, um, And what a strong feature that is, even in an individual kind of presentation. Mm. I always think of family therapy a bit like a, a, a using a scalpel when previously you, you've had a spoon. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> uh, it can be a, a lot. It can be very powerful. Mm. But it's almost, um, my theory about it is it's almost changing the reality of that person mm. if you mm. can change the family, which is very different from working to change how they cope with whatever reality yes. they've already got at the moment. I always remember something you said, Rebecca, and I've said it many times before. I said, oh, Rebecca said this. And you said, um, you know, give me one – if if I have an hour and you give me one person, I can help one person. If I have a family in, in that hour, I can help five people. Mm. I was like, oh, that's so efficient. <laughs> yeah, no, I think my argument was that's cheaper, right? It's financially more efficient if I can manage – 
of course, it may take a little longer. We yeah. might have more sessions if we got more people in the room. But um, being, you often see this, I think, Jenny. Yes, might I agree. agree. Yeah. yeah, where you you see one um, sibling. You manage to, f- in inverted commas, fix that sibling, mm. and then the, the other sibling has difficulties. And, mm. and we know why that might be, because, in fact, the symptoms are playing a role in that mm. family. They're serving a purpose. Yeah, agree. And they're an expression of the whole family right. that has landed in one place, in one part of the family that is vulnerable to absorbing more of the anxious intensity. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to pick up on, you know, why family therapy yeah, for people yeah. out there. And I really like what you said, Anna, and I would just add to it. I think it fits that family therapy really humanizes mm-hmm. rather than medicalizes mm-hmm. what's going on so that I I invite listeners to reflect on the impact of somebody having the identity as the symptom bearer of being a patient Mm. rather than a human who's part of a group that is struggling, Mm. messy, trying to find their way to do their best. Mm. So it's moving from everyone is a person Mm. rather than a patient. Mm. I really valued that in my early family therapy training, uh, away from the language of this is the sick one or this is the patient, Mm. to this is the IP, the index person or the identified patient. Mm. There are different words for it Mm -hmm. that is an expression of a relationship struggle or disturbance in the whole system and in the context in which the family's embedded, Mm. the social context, Mm -hmm. that Mm. that's all part of it. And I will say briefly that I was a symptom bearer for a time in my own family growing Mm. up and had psychosomatic symptoms when I was age 11, and there's a lot of story behind that as there is with any family. So I remember being treated by psychiatry Mm. outside of my family Mm. and the loss of that. And even as an 11-year-old, it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I was sensitive to my parents being blamed without them being talked to. Mm. So, of course, you can understand some of what attracted me (laughs) to family therapy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in my own training, that how can you just dissect an individual Mm -hmm. who's going through a season of struggle or Mm -hmm. symptoms? out of their most influential context. I think that uh, when I think systemically, the the tendency to blame is much less. Mm. I, I've noticed that in, not just in working with families, but if I, there's a problem at the office or mm. a problem with my own family, it's much easier to not blame people mm-hmm. when you think of the system as a whole and how everybody, mm. as you say, is doing their best and trying to solve something, whatever it might be, yeah. So what do you think scares people then about coming to family (laughs) therapy or even family-inclusive practice? Because certainly some people say, oh, actually, I hardly ever have more than one person in the room. So many things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> where does where does one start? It I is think, scary. Yeah, it is. It Managing is. all those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. People who have their own relationships that you don't know about, people who maybe have their own secrets that you don't know about as yeah. a therapist. Yeah. But also I think there is a skill, and I suppose it goes back a little bit to circular questioning, between moving your area of interest, I guess, away from what's happening in one person and what's happening between people because you also want to be able to bring everybody 
everybody into the conversation. And if you're used to working with just one, that's a kind of tricky thing, which is why, you know, we'll add something, another link in in the notes um, about this. But um, I think also, you know, they can be a bit unpredictable. You never know what what might happen. I quite like your analogy of the scalpel versus the spoon. Yeah, I think it <laughs> can be very powerful. powerful things, yeah. Incredibly powerful things can happen. Mm. But because there are relationships that are there that you might not know about, unpredictable things can also happen. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you, things can catch fire mm. a lot more quickly perhaps than in an individual setting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, can, that can be scary. And I, that kind of idea of there's the unknown, you know, there's stuff happening here that I don't fully understand. That is a, a kind of precept to family therapy, yeah. this, this idea about sitting in the not knowing. Yes. Uh, and I think that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people to spend 20 years and still go into practice and think, I don't know what's going on yep. here. And uh, I do spend some sessions thinking, I, I haven't got this yet. I mm-hmm. haven't got what's going on. It's too complicated. Or what I thought it was, it isn't. Mm-hmm. It isn't. And I think that is can be draining, can be challenging, can be draining, and can also be, if you're a rural mental health practitioner, can be isolating mm-hmm. because you think, mm-hmm. am I – doing a wonderful job of sitting in the not knowing or am I just not being a very good therapist? <laughs> yes. You need the classic strategy from Milan of reframing yes. the not knowing. Yeah. Uh, reframing that not knowing with a family is actually respectful mm-hmm. rather than trying to be the expert who mm-hmm. should know. Mm-hmm. And not only is that respectful, it's calming for a family system mm-hmm. to have someone sit there who is open and curious and treating the family as the experts mm-hmm. on what's going on for right. them. Right. And I guess that's, you know, when we talk about history and the differences between kind of pure structural and the Milan kind of revolution, this idea about being part of the system was a really big idea mm-hmm. that when you come into me with a family, you become part of their system for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means you can be affected by the system, but it also means you can affect the system. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And that uh, can feel more powerful, can feel like you can do something. So um, definitely people worry about, okay, what if I do something wrong? What else do you think people might worry about? Families do, they're sensitized to each other, family members. Mm. So they're bringing those into the room mm. and you can feel the energy of it. Mm. There's anxiety circuitries mm. there that are not present when you just have one member in the room. Right. And that is a challenge and people need to just work at managing their own anxious responses mm. to that and l- letting there be a space for it mm. and not be panicked by it. But I do think there are some important skills and ways of managing that, mm. that mm. family therapy approaches help people with. Yes. Mm. I also think it's it's quite cognitively challenging, you know, to have five people in the room and kind of be tracking what they're doing and what they're saying and how is that going to make that, you know, the mum over there feel and blah, blah, Um But my favourite thing about family therapy is you, you almost can't do it with your brain alone. You've got to have a bit of a – it's sort of instinct and brain mm. at the same time because I don't think you can do it in a linear sort of, you know, information-gathering kind of fashion – 
just something will tug in the back of my brain. Or oh, oh, I think that might upset someone <laughs> in the corner there who's there. Oh, that's the mum. You know, and, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I wonder if sometimes people feel like having more than one person, I couldn't possibly just keep track mm-hmm. of the information or the um, uh, interaction that's happening between us. Mm. Yes. You know, it's really interesting because as you were speaking, I was just thinking that having worked with families a lot much more recently in my career, if I go back to working with an individual, I find individual work very hard. Mm. (laughs) I find it a lot more, I find it, there's a lot more effort Mm. for me Mm -hmm. in doing individual work. I feel like I have to do a lot more work. Whereas when when I have a family, I feel like, okay, what what can you bring? And I guess that's just, Mm. you know, part of practicing something different and learning a different way to think about things. But when I'm working with an individual, I just feel like, oh, this is going to be really hard. Yes. How are we going to find all the, the things? There's no one here else to talk to about this. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I find you can really use family members. You don't have to know everything. This is what I like. And the, the position, the not knowing position is also about respecting the knowledge that people bring to the room. You don't have to have all the answers and solutions. Mm-hmm. And if you do put forward a solution, you can talk right then and there. Okay, what about if we did this? And mum says, well, no, we can't do that because of mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. You've already kind of – You've got all this resource in the room, I guess, is what I'm thinking. So while I I totally agree it's a cognitive challenge, (laughs) it also in some ways means you can really draw on on that expertise and that experience. And I feel like I get to do less. Yeah, and and maybe that is a difference that people – that you almost have to trust the family more in a Mm. funny way. I was just speaking to a supervisor the other day who was saying – how do you finish with families? How do you know to, to say you don't have to come to therapy anymore? And sometimes when you look at the models, that's way earlier than you would perhaps do with an individual where you're saying, oh, no more yeah. symptoms, great, then we're finished. Sometimes we're letting families go much before that because we feel like the patterns have been set up that they can manage the mm-hmm. symptoms or the you know problem or whatever. I think that is a little tricky, isn't it? I mean, I, I can see why that's also scary. How do you feel? How do you know what to do, when to start, when to finish, how much you should get in there, how much you should be hands off? Mm. Um, I, and different models would say different things, I suppose, in family therapy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, the way I've been working over quite a long period in, in the evolution, all of our careers professionally are a process, but um, I would start with the family if the family members all want to be there. I used to use strategic ideas to try and get along unwilling family members. I no longer do that because my perspective is that any number of willing people in the room from the family are representing the whole system Mm -hmm. and you get caught in triangles if you align with someone to Mm -hmm. bring in an outsider. So avoid that. But we might start with, particularly if it's a child problem, a generational family present. And as you begin to explore the patterns and the parents start to get some insights of how am I contributing to this? And how might I be part of the solution, therefore? Mm. And I don't think people can be part of a solution until they've had the insight of this is how I'm part of this pattern Mm. that's keeping things stuck Mm -hmm. so that 
the ending for me is kind of a new beginning, mm. which is where the parent or one parent or both parents is willing to dismiss the kid who's had enough of coming anyway. <laughs> they've appreciated that they've been heard in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's been valuable for them and the relationship. And then the adult members of the family are willing to take a lead. And so often it's an, a move from family to couple work mm -hmm. or one individual saying, I really want to keep working on myself because I can see the ripple effect mm -hmm. of how it, one family member adjusting mm -hmm. their reactivity brings benefit to the whole family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it might be a little different. Well, different very, very, very similar. And I think I was just thinking about this idea of stuckness. And I suppose I still kind of, you know, uh, what, what you were saying earlier, Rebecca, about that there is some kind of sense of you almost trust a family. You trust a family. You have a sense of them being competent mm. and capable. Mm. And so I guess the way that I look at it is that you're helping families become unstuck that you assume that actually families will naturally respond to problems and barriers and things that are going on in their lives and they'll change what they do because Joey's got to go to soccer training and someone's got to do this and someone got married or someone, uh, you know, gran grandma passed away, whatever it is, that we adjust naturally. Mm. And so I always think in, in your family therapy work, you're, you're working with a family who is stuck mm. and they're not responding or mm -hmm. they're not adjusting in mm. the way that they might normally do that. And so your aim is just to get them unstuck. Right. And I always think of that like a hook. You're trying mm -hmm. to get them off the hook yeah. and off they go. Yeah. And again, this for me, I suppose, from a constructivist position, I, I, I don't see myself necessarily as, as holding the responsibility for them. Um, you know, that, that they come in and I get them as unstuck as they need to be to keep going and doing all the stuff that I know they already know how to do. Mm. Um, and so some of my work is single session kind of family consultation mm -hmm. work where we just meet once and I say, look, we've got this time. We've got an hour and a half. What do you want to talk about? And then they go mm. <laughs> and they might choose to come back for two or three more sessions. But I also like the idea that people then get to come back in and go as they need to. So it's like a, it's like a tune up, I suppose, but as they come in, they use the session the way that they want to use it. Um, you get them unstuck and they make the decision then about whether they want another one, whether they feel like that's enough. Yeah. Cause it's quite unusual, isn't it? O you know, open dialogue almost at the end of the session. What the question is always, do you want to come yeah, back? How do, you... do we proceed? Yes, yeah. Yes. I would operate the same way. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's the, the family is leading the mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and making their own discoveries and decisions. Otherwise, we enter too much into the stuckness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we're trying to be determine what's best for them. Yeah. So I guess that leads to a question, would you ever say family therapy is not the best option? You know, when would you not recommend it? I think that when family therapy can be destructive oh. is when people cannot control their negative reactivity in a session. They're just so flooded and triggered by each other mm. in terms of how intense things are. Mm. And if I see that happening and use the best of my own capacity to be calm and to ask questions that bring the focus back to mm -hmm. me rather than reacting to each other. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work, I will stop a session and explain why that 
part of my responsibility in working with families is is helping create a space where people can think and listen. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of reasons, that's not possible right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to need to just break this up and see you each individually, just 10 minutes each, just for me to hear what you want to bring to this session. Mm -hmm. So I think battling on with a session where there is an intense negative reactivity going on, but in that in-betweens and that can't, uh, the key technique I would use, which might be different for you, Anna, but is to just invite people to not do structural enactments, mm. not Mnuchin <laughs> enactments, just to say, talk to me about your thinking of that question mm -hmm. so that other family members can listen without reacting to mm -hmm. your body language and all those triggers. Mm -hmm. And that calms people down and externalizes the thinking of another that can really build thoughtful connection. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that a family's not there. Mm. And it can be quite destructive, particularly for young people, mm. if there's an over-anxious arousal created in a family session. And and that's why I do think that people need supervision yeah. as newer family therapists. Not that I want to discourage people from having a go mm. at the basics of letting family members say, what's going on for them and encouraging others to listen. That's kind of the basics. I, I think that description of um, are people able to listen, that's mm, that's a helpful yes. marker, isn't it? Because yes. you don't want to not talk about hot topics because mm. then you just n not get anywhere. Yeah. But uh, I think uh, it reminds me of that John Breer kind of therapeutic window where mm. you want to be not right down in the green zone but you don't want to be in the red zone either where people are all in their mm -hmm. reacting brains, fight, flight, whatever. So then how do you know how long to let it go? You know, some someone might have a bit of a raised voice or whatever, but if people are listening, still able to hear what's being mm -hmm. said, I think that's a really helpful marker. And, and then if they're not, okay, this is not being that yeah. helpful. And you mm. use, I would use an I position. Here's what I'm concerned about in terms mm. of what I think is important. What do you think? Mm. Mm. Do you have any ideas on how we can do it differently? Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if, a, so give the family every opportunity mm. to hang in there with it. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes I don't think this is the majority. I think it's a minority. Mm. It's not possible. Right. Right. Yeah. I really like what you said, Jenny. And I think I would do. Very, 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 very similarly. And I think, you know, that idea of encouraging people to talk to you as therapist can also, I think, you know, challenge some of that heat that's being built. Mm. Um, I guess the only other thing I was thinking to answer your question, Rebecca, about when you might not use that family therapy, I might have some hesitation if there, if I knew about abuse mm. in the family. Sure. Um, if I wasn't 100% sure that the young people or the less powerful people in a system were safe or were going to be safe when they got home, mm -hmm. then I might not advise or I might work individually or work with a subset of a family mm. um, to make sure that whatever conversations were happening in the room, that they were creating not only were safe in the room, but were also safe outside of that space. 
Yeah, and there are certainly people who work in that space in, in a mm. kind of relational way, but they're obviously specially trained yes. and they're, they're well experienced and that's that's probably a very complex area. I would say if you're not a family therapist, that's yeah. an obvious kind of exclusion that, that yep, yeah, if there's violence mm. or something like that going on. I also wonder if uh, – I, I remember somebody once said, uh, you're talking about a bridge – and and if you've got the peers are not really um, at a stage where they can support the bridge, sometimes you've got to go and shore it, shore up the peers a little bit, and then the the bridge is where you know the healing actually happens. Mm. Then often um, relational damage is healed in a relational mm. way, mm. but sometimes the peers are in a state where actually they're not able to support the bridge yet, and maybe there's a bit of work to do before that. However, I think that there is a lot of times when people feel like they um, don't want to work with the family um, because actually there are a whole bunch of reasons. It'll be tricky or there's, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do and all of that's really legitimate. Uh, but actually the solution, in inverted commas, to this uh, um, presentation would be some kind of relational work, some kind of family work. So let's think about the people that who are listening who are not family therapy trained. Uh, should they be listening and think, oh, okay, well, that sounds very interesting, but I don't have time to go and do my family therapy masters. Uh, <laughs> so what is it that I should take from this podcast? You mentioned, Jenny, that sometimes people can take techniques or particular skills, particular ideas even, that can be helpful even when you are uh, not yet really engaged in doing family therapy. Mm -hmm. Are there a couple of things that you guys would offer to generalist kind of uh, rural mental health practitioners? Well, I think uh, it's a skill that I was taught in my early family therapy training back with Relationships Australia that wasn't even called that when I trained. It was called <laughs> Marriage Guidance Council of New right, South yeah. Wales. But um, the skill of tracking a sequence mm. I would say if there's one thing to learn and practice how to do, it would be the hands-on skill I'd take into training for people, no matter whether they're going to work with families or not, mm. is being able to make the links between people mm -hmm. of what happened and what happened next and then and how to, mm. and right through to how it all ended up. Mm. It's not an easy skill. But it was one of the early ones that I learned and I still see it as so useful in mm. every setting with individuals, with couples and with families. Mm. So that would be my one pick. Mm. But I'd mm. also say that there's a lot of great family therapy training, short courses, mm. a lot of free stuff online. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everyone can benefit by making the time to get so a, a flavor of family therapy, even if there's not an intention to become a family therapist, I think it can enhance clinical work yeah. and broaden people's thinking beyond the classic cause and effect thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trying to find out how A has caused B rather than seeing that linear thinking is only one piece of something more complicated. How do you phrase sequence uh, elicitation. <laughs> uh, I, I always say 
hey, tell me about uh, the last time or the worst time that things blew up. Is, yeah. is that kind of how you would phrase it? Yes, it's good to get practical. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for that, Rebecca. <laughs> so um, a person, I have a family in front of me and they say, oh, my child is, is refusing to go to school. Mm-hmm. And the child's sitting there not saying much. <laughs> And the other parent who isn't saying much is not really wanting to be there. They've been dragged along. That would be typical. And so I will say, obviously, I've engaged with each member of the family first, just connected, found out a little bit about them, not just about the problem they bring. Mm-hmm. But then the, if the person who said, this is the problem for me, I'm saying, can you think of an example that's still fresh in your mind of how you've responded to that challenge Mm -hmm. and let's track it Mm. and that you can involve the child in that mum came in and tried to drag me out Mm. and I was tied up and and the mother describes you pulled his the doona up over his head is that how you remember it Mm. yeah that's how so you're involving (laughs) the child in just tracking the sequence and where were you to the father Mm. were you aware of what happened did you say Mm. anything and okay let's get back to this sequence i really i want to track it as if you had brought in a video to show me Mm. what's going on every morning in the household Mm. great Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's so it's so interesting to hear you speak about it. We wouldn't necessarily track a sequence, but I also, you know, I really like the idea that I, I find anyway that in terms of what what we're supposed to be doing or what somebody who's new to family therapy needs to be doing, I think that a lot of that is that family members, I, I find anyway, particularly parents, tend to self-correct. Mm. So I don't need to tell them. <laughs> you know that thing that you did when you're supposed to get your son out of bed and you did that mm. instead of this? Mm. What? Maybe you should do it this way. Mm. You don't necessarily have to tell them how to do things, but I think it's just that awareness. Where was I? What was I doing? How was I responding? And and in in the conversation around that, people often say, oh, I didn't mean to do it like that. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't mean to give you that impression. I didn't mean to make you think that you weren't a competent mm-hmm. young person. Um, and so they they self correct. Mm. And you know, again, it kind of comes back to this feeling that I have that it's it's easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I feel like I do less. Yeah. Um, because I am re- merely you know inviting people to to speak about what's happening, and then they they can self-correct. They, they can figure out what they want to do themselves, how they want to respond to that. Yeah, really helpful. In their own way. Mm. I was um, just thinking about this question. One of the things that is um, kind of structured into the Milan first session is that you ask each member of the family, what do they worry about? You know, what are yeah. their worries? And you're supposed to keep asking until you understand why it's a worry and not just an annoyance and a frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that it's a complete list. And, and I think parents often say, I'm worried about my kid. And also, uh, I lost my job last week and actually yeah. my sister's got cancer. And I, I do, sometimes people ask me, how do you ch- um, change that focus on the child? I wonder if that process can often change that focus mm-hmm. where it becomes very clear why you know, there's stress in this family mm. and it's not all about how the kid has been a rat bag. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you can use circular questions in that um, uh, process where you mm. say, oh, I'm about to ask mum what she worries about. And it, I often find it interesting if you ask parents, I'm going to ask your kid what they worry about, what do you think they're going to say? And often they say, oh, you know, not getting their own way and mm. blah, blah, blah. 
And then to understand why that's a worry to not get your own way. Mm -hmm. What is it that is fearful about that or causes anxiety? I think that's a, you know, pretty standalone little tool you can, you can have. And it's, um, something which might give you a much bigger picture of the family rather than just the symptom bearer kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The other tool that I would never give up. Yes. That I think is manageable for newer therapists is tracking a timeline Mm -hmm. of a family. Again, it's not trying to fix anything. It's just getting the de- the facts of when the family came together. Mm-hmm. And for young people to hear that, mm-hmm. their parents describing what was going on before they came along, what were the challenges they were up against, what were the were there any particular stress points, mm-hmm. the death of another an extended family member, mm-hmm. a loss of a job. So it's it would be another probably a common factor. There might be different ways of going about it, mm. but the broader context mm. is really important to get away from just focusing mm. on the mm. symptom bearer. Let's kind of mm. zoom back mm. and see the bigger picture. And in training people, I'm always saying, don't get caught in having to interpret any mm. of that. Mm or mm. comment on it, just acknowledge it mm. and normalize it. Mm. Oh, family life mm. is complicated. Mm. There are lots of things to have to adapt to and find your way through and look at what, and v- drawing it out, mm. look at what you've been up against and found your way through mm. as a family. Any any surprises in just going back over that? Mm. Families really calm down, mm. I find, doing that. And then my other piece I could never let go of. Mm. I just remembered. I said it was only one, but there's another. <laughs> it's constructing a genogram mm. or yes, a family true. diagram yeah. with at least three generations mm-hmm. and having that in front of me every time I meet with mm. a family or a family member. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, when you were talking about the timeline, Jenny, it just reminded me, of thinking about the cultural uh, uh, kind of context mm-hmm. of uh, families and as well as the death of a loved one and all that sort of stuff, the, you know, systemic racism or the, mm. the feeling of constant poverty or community violence or whatever and, and how that affects a family's timeline. and that The immigration a- experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just thinking about how powerful it often is for family members to hear about those things. And I don't know about you guys, but so many times – Young people, so in their twenties, will say, "I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Mm. I didn't know mm. that Uncle So and So did this and had this, and mm-hmm. you know." And so it's really lovely when you can actually have those conversations. I think it does bring about big changes that a young person will start to see their parent in a different light, mm. and the other way around potentially. And I guess that's a big part of what we're aiming yeah, to do. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I guess I was just thinking about, you know, from the perspective of someone who usually works with individuals and how to do this and how to start, where to begin. You know, I think that there's so much you can learn from just inviting one person in. And we might, like yes. in, in the, in a dialogical perspective, we might ask a young person who knows about the problem, who is worried about you. And who do you think would be helpful mm-hmm. to have in the room? Mm-hmm. And so they, they might pick just one person. And mm. I've worked with, um, most often it's mum, <laughs> yeah. um, but I've worked with flatmates, best friends, cousins, um, who'll come in and they're the person who knows about the, the psychotic experiences. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are most worried and they trust that person. And so that's often for me where I might begin. 
um, to to inviting that one person in who who the young person themselves has identified this is someone who's going to be helpful in this situation. Um, so just that first invitation, mm. who might you want to be there? Um, and then, you know, if when, when you do start to invite parents, I think it's not, it's not just about, you know, how to do it, but also about how much information you can then gather. Mm. And I know that when we're teaching our students, um, at the university, they say, Oh, I met that person's mum and I understand that person so much mm. more now. Mm-hmm. I really get it. And I really get particularly little, you know, children and adolescents. I really get why they're doing the thing that they're doing. Mm. And so even if you are working in an, from an individual perspective, you'll learn so much more about your client. Mm from understanding what their world is, mm-hmm. what they're coping with. Broadening the lens. Broadening right. the lens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, which I think should be the theme of this podcast, <laughs> mm. I think we're almost out of time. So um, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I think, of course, it's a very complex topic and, and people might think, oh, well, there's a lot to, to manage there. But hopefully there was something that people took away, which they think, yeah, that's manageable. That's something I could give a go and, mm-hmm. and see how it went. And even as Anna said, it's inviting one extra person in for a period of time mm-hmm. of the session. Maybe there's an experience there that is different for both the client and for the therapist. So thank you so much for your time. As everybody would know, this is uh, part of our partnership with New South Wales Health and it will be available on our digital learning platform and we will put extra resources underneath. So if you're interested in exploring more, there'll be plenty of ways to do that. Please do get in touch with us if you've got an idea for a topic for a future podcast, you have a question you would like to ask our guests, then please get in touch with us through our website theperegrinecentre.com.au. Thank you for listening. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.